I hope to pick up where we left off last Lord's Day and considering the first paragraph of chapter 6 in our Confession of Faith on the fall of man, sin, and the punishment thereof. And one of the things that we were wanting to do last week is we noticed, took note of the fact that the language in Second London is considerably different than what we find in either the Savoy Declaration or the Westminster Confession of Faith. And as we said last week, that's not because the Baptists have a different understanding of the fall, or a different view of sin, or a different view of God's judgment and punishment with respect to sin. Not, not at all. Their, their views are identical there. But the, the reason for the language was to make a very careful distinction that it was actually the violation of positive law which led to the fall. And of course, at the same time, that was a violation of God's moral law, but it was not only the law written on Adam's heart that he rebelled against. This was a law that God had specifically, explicitly stated to Adam, and he willfully, and we could say maliciously, rebelled against that law. And so what we're going to see throughout the rest of chapter 6 are the implications of that. And so let's, let us go to the Lord in prayer. These are important matters for us to, to think clearly and carefully through them. And so we, we are definitely in need of the Spirit's help as we, we seek to understand all these things. So let's pray and ask for the Lord to give his divine assistance to us this morning. Our gracious God and Father, thank you that you have set your love upon us from before you spoke the world into existence. You had already purposed all of these things. And we, we can confess with our mouths according to your word and, and, and yet not fully understand, not fully comprehend that your eternal decree extended even to that first fall of angels and men. And so we ask for your help, Holy Spirit, that we would understand, but not only that we would understand, but that we would rejoice in your divine electing grace, that we would, would recognize the, the sinfulness of our sin and flee to Christ for our only remedy, our only hope, our only cleansing uh, to be found in him. Help us, uh, Lord, to, to, as we work through this this concept of a covenant of works, that we would understand it from the scriptures and glorify you in it. We ask this in Christ. Amen. If you have your Bibles uh, with you, if you turn to chapter 2 of Genesis, chapter 2 of Genesis, <clears throat> we looked last week at, primarily at Genesis chapter 3 and, and the fall itself, but it's important for us to understand some of the context leading up to that. And what has transpired? So I'm going to pick up in verse 10 and read to the end of the chapter. Genesis chapter 2, verse 10. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first was Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Bdellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock, and to the birds of the heavens, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper 
fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, this is at last bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now I want to go directly from there and read the text of paragraph 1 in our confession. And, and, then, and then look carefully at some of the terms that are here. What we're going to contemplate today, uh, the Lord's help is the second half of this paragraph. And, and what, I, what I hope is that we will be persuaded that the framers of our confession, the editors of our confession, are indeed describing a covenant of works. It's a covenant of works. Even though the word covenant does not appear, even though the phrase covenant of works does not appear, I, I hope that we will see that that is in fact what's taking place. In fact, the language that they chose is, is slightly even more specific than the phrase covenant of works. So let's read the paragraph together. Paragraph 1 says, Although God created man upright and perfect and gave him a righteous law, which had been unto life, had he kept it, and threatened death upon the breach thereof, yet he did not long abide in this honor. Satan, using the subtlety of the serpent to seduce Eve, then by her seducing Adam, who, without any compulsion, did willfully transgress the law of their creation and the command given unto them in eating the forbidden fruit, which God was pleased, according to his wise and holy counsel, to permit, having purposed to order it to his own glory. Now I want to point out, before we even jump into the subject matter, is you notice the, the, the writers of our confession just take the Genesis account as history. It's literal history. Uh, there, there's, there's no sense here whatsoever that that Adam and Eve are to be understood in some sort of poetic or metaphorical way or as a typological only. Adam and Eve were historical human beings. They were actually and literally the first man and the first woman ever to walk the earth. And that's, that's vitally important because as we work through the rest of this chapter, we're going to see that Adam stood as the federal head. He stood in the stead as a representative for all mankind. And if that is not true, then when we get to the New Testament and we have the doctrine of the second Adam introduced to us, the second Adam who stands in the head of all those who would believe, that all those who are found in Christ are made whole and righteous and sinless on account of him, that doctrine doesn't stand if we reject the first one. If Adam is not a literal person who is the literal federal head of all mankind, and in, in, and in Adam we find the root and the ground of all of our sinful condition, then we cannot come to the New Testament and find Christ as the root and ground of all of our righteousness. It's an all or nothing proposition. So again, once, once again, it assumes just a straightforward reading of Genesis 1 through 3 in particular, but, but of all the scriptures. The fall was literal history. Now one of the keys to understanding biblical covenants is recognizing that they are, we could say, beyond nature. Covenants are not part of the natural order. God has introduced covenants to men. Covenants are initiated by God with mankind. They're not part of the natural created order. Now what was part of the natural created order, we see the language here in our confession, the law of their creation. That's a reference to the law indelibly written on the heart of Adam. Later that same law would be summarized in the Ten Commandments. But it was written on the heart of Adam. So we could say it's the law of nature or the law of creation, natural law, the moral law, all those terms we could use in a sense uh, uh, 
synonymously. So these biblical covenant stands outside of or beyond nature because they are initiated with God. And, and this is part of the reason that our confession makes this distinction. You read down in the, the second, the last third of the confession that Adam, who without any compulsion did willingly transgress the law of their creation and the command given unto him. So it's a both and. It's not an either or, it's a both and. He created, he, he rebelled against not only the works or the law written on his heart, but more specifically, more explicitly, the command given unto him. Well, what was that command? Do not eat of that particular tree. There's one tree in the midst of the garden from which you may not eat. And on the day of which you eat it, you shall surely die. All these trees, everything in this garden, all of this abundance, I have fully, completely, unrestrainedly given to you. But there's the one tree that I labeled, God said, off limits. So as we contemplate this language and the doctrine that is alluded to is contained here in paragraph one, what we see is what we're dealing with is a covenant of works. It's a covenant of works. Now this covenant of works begins of course, with God's initiation, and the initial party to this covenant of works was Adam as the federal head. Adam and Eve, but Adam as the head. And according to this, to the creation account that we find in Genesis 1 and 2, Adam is not merely created and, and left to govern the garden on his own, according to his own whims and volition. God enters into a covenant with Adam, and, and thereby, through that covenant, he obligates Adam to obedience, and he promises reward for that obedience. But what else does he promise? A penalty for disobedience, a sanction for disobedience. Now, you, you probably already know this, but some, uh, even in Reformed circles, and even within our Reformed camp, there are some who object to designated designating God's arrangement with Adam as a covenant. And they, they object to that on the grounds that you can search your Bible in Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3, and you won't find the word covenant at all. You won't find it there. And so some see, aha, see, there's no covenant, because it doesn't say covenant. Well, and I've, I've, I've used this, this term before. I, I first heard it from Dr. Rich Barcellus, the idea of a word-concept fallacy. And it's the idea that just because we don't see a word present doesn't mean that we're not seeing the concept present. Now, of course, we've just spent several weeks going through the doctrine of providence. And so we could read, for example, in, in Genesis 45 to 50, all about the life of Joseph. And not one time in all of those chapters in Genesis do you find the word providence. But can it be denied that the doctrine of providence is not, in some respects, front and center in the narration of Joseph, right? And in fact, that, that wonderful sort of closing idea that Joseph confesses to his brothers, or, or declares to his brothers, I should say, after their father Jacob had died, what you intended for evil, God meant for good to bring about the salvation of many this day. And so Joseph understood the doctrine of providence, even though the word isn't found there. So for example, we, we, as we think about these ideas, we need to recognize that even when we don't see an explicit word being used in our Bibles, we need to discover, is the doctrine here though? Is, is the concept here? And we can conclude, I think conclusively, that God did in fact make a covenant with Adam. This is not merely a, a, a command without any other context. This isn't, didn't ha these events didn't happen in a vacuum. God has made a covenant with Adam. Now remember that a covenant at its most basic, as its most fundamental level, is a commitment with sanctions. And so when God initiates a covenant with man, what is he doing? God is obligating himself. He is committing himself to something, and he is imposing sanctions upon the human participant in the covenant 
if the human being fails in that or the people fail in that. And I'm going to make five observations here, and, I, and I'm, I'm borrowing uh, much of this material actually from, Sam, from Dr. Sam Renahan. I quoted from Jim Renahan in his symbolics, uh, his commentary on our confession many times. But this is, some of this is actually taken from a chapter in Sam Renahan's book, The Mystery of Christ. I think he does a, an outstanding job of, of unpacking this idea of a covenant of works and helping us to see that for a number of reasons, again, even though the word isn't here, for a number of reasons, the, the evidence is compelling. So if we had a, you know, a judge and jury here and, and a, a prosecutor and a defense attorney and we had, a, we had to make our case, we could make a compelling case. In fact, so much so that at the end, the defense would not even be permitted to stand. The prosecution would ask for a summary judgment and the judge would surely grant it, right? There's the, the evidence will be overwhelming and compelling that this is, in fact, a covenant of works. Notice in the first place, I'm going to look at five different things here, but the first one is that God's creation of Adam was followed by placing Adam in the garden. Adam was not created in the garden. Did you catch that when we read in chapter 2? Look at verse 15 of Genesis 2. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Adam was, in a sense, plucked from the rest of creation and placed into this garden. Eden was not man's initial or natural location. And because of the particular features and the particular purposes of the garden, what we conclude is that the garden was actually a temple. Notice when we go back to Genesis 2, some of the descriptions. There was a river that flowed out of Eden to water the garden. Now, when you see this imagery of rivers, our minds immediately go to Ezekiel, right? Where the river flowed from the very throne of God. Where else does our mind go when we think of a river flowing like this? Revelation, exactly right. In the new heavens, in New Jerusalem, we see a river of life flowing. And of course, the trees are growing magnificently, trees of life. So we already have that imagery. But what else do we see in this paragraph? The name of the first was Pishon, is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and onyx stone are there. Where else do we see in the scriptures these kind of various uh, sundry and, and strange stones and, and precious jewels? Yes, the building of the tabernacle and the temple. And, and so what are those kinds of things, our, our brains ought to immediately think, wait a minute, this is kind of temple imagery, isn't it? Well, that's exactly right. The garden was actually a temple. This was not just a place of dirt. This was not just a, a, a place of beautiful vegetation and flowers and, and good things like that. It was certainly that. But the garden was a temple. Adam created, or God created Adam as a prophet, priest, and king, and then put him in this sacred space and, and, and charged him to operate according to a covenant. Listen to Sam Renahan. There are numerous features in the text of Genesis 2 that mark this out for the reader, such as its eastern designation, its mountaintop location, its rivers, its trees, its precious stones, and its metals as indicators of its temple character. These features do not seem especially significant on their own, but when compared with the way that later scriptures employ the same imagery, one finds that later temples are described in language that echoes the imagery of Eden. Eden was a prototypical temple template from which later scriptures draw their imagery and language. Say that fast three times. Prototypical temple template. But I think he's exactly right. And we find that the, 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 the later scriptures, the prophets, the minor prophets, uh, all the way through to Revelation, we see these same kinds of images being used. So this is further evidence of the temple nature and the function of the garden is found in the fact that, that God, what did God do when Adam and Eve sinned? Drove them out of the temple. Why? Because God's dwelling place 
cannot be inhabited by unholiness, uncleanness. So the requirement of God's holiness in his tabernacles and temples is consistent throughout the scriptures, isn't it? And so when you get to uh, Exodus, Numbers, uh, but particularly in, in Leviticus, you see the, it feels to us almost like excruciating detail of how it is that we can be made clean, be made clean in order to come into the presence of God. Uh, for the, the rituals that, that, that Aaron and his sons, for example, had to undergo in order to become priests and to minister in God's temple. So, number one, God's creation of Adam was followed by his placement of him in the garden, which was a temple. The second thing we see, in terms of we're, we're building our case here to demonstrate from the scriptures that what we're dealing with in Genesis 1 and 2 and 3 was actually a covenant, or 1 and 2 was a covenant of works, and then chapter 3 describes how this covenant of works was broken by Adam. Number two is that God appointed Adam as a federal head. God appointed Adam as a federal head. Now remember, all biblical covenants have a federal head. All of them do. Adam is commanded by God to subdue not only the garden, but what else? To subdue the whole earth and to fill it with worshipers. Now this is nothing other than federal headship. Adam stood officially in the stead of all humanity. And of course the New Testament writers confirm this. This isn't speculative. The Apostle Paul, for example, in Romans 5 beginning in verse 18, says, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one's man's obedience the many will be made righteous. So Paul's basically saying what I said earlier. You, you can't separate these two. If Adam does not stand in the stead, in the place, as the official representative, as the official head of all mankind, then neither can Christ. It has to go both ways. Again, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 21, Paul's echoing the very same thing. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. So this is the second aspect. We're making our checklist. We're building our, our, our case here. Okay? And so as we're preventing this, presenting this evidence, we would say, Your Honor, this is Exhibit B. Exhibit B is that Adam stood as a federal head. Adam didn't stand representing himself alone. Adam stood as a federal head. Who, who when, his, when he sinned, he sinned in an official representative capacity. Number three, here's our, our third, this would be exhibit C. Our third plank in our, our building our case here is that God had obligated Adam to a positive law of obedience. And this is exactly where our confession, I think, is helpful in being just a bit more precise than Westminster. Again, it's not a departure from the doctrine of Westminster, but it is an attempt to make the language just that more precise. So this is why we get the language, he did willingly confess, willingly transgress the law of their creation and the command given unto them in eating the forbidden fruit, which God was pleased according to his wise and holy counsel to permit. So Adam transgressed a very specific law. He did not transgress only the moral law which is written on his heart. He did that. But very specifically, there was a positive law of obedience that God required of Adam as a condition of the covenant, and Adam disobeyed that. <clears throat> Beyond the moral law written on Adam's heart, God had also given to him a positive law, both affirmatively and negatively. Of course, an affirmative, but by that I mean you shall do this, and the negative, you shall not do this. You shall eat 
of all these trees. You shall walk with me. You shall obey me. You shall uh, fill the earth and subdue it and multiply. And you shall not eat of this one tree in the midst of the garden. God had given Adam the affirmative command to work and to keep the garden. Do you realize that these are priestly functions? It, so sometimes we have in our mind, because maybe we saw this in a children's Bible somewhere, when, when Adam is sold to work the land, we have him out there with, with a hoe and a pitchfork. And, and, I mean, he would have done some of that, but what was primarily the work that a, that a priest, prophet, king is called to do in a temple? It, the sacrifices, to minister worship unto God, right? And so when... when we see this back in verse 15. We're still in Genesis 2. The Lord God took the man, put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Well, this sounds very similar to what we see in Numbers chapter 3. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Bring the tribe of Levi near and set them before Aaron the priest, that they may minister to him. They shall keep guard over and over him and over the whole congregation before the tent of meeting as they minister at the tabernacle. They shall guard or keep all the furnishings of the tent of meeting and shall guard or keep over the people of Israel as they minister at the tabernacle. And you shall give the Levites to Aaron and his sons. They are wholly given to him from among the people of Israel. And you shall appoint Aaron and his sons and they shall guard their priesthood. But if any outsider comes near, he shall be put to death. Okay. Well, he, he's not necessarily commanded yet to offer sacrifices. Um, we're going to see with, with Cain and Abel right away in chapter 4 that there were commands to sacrifice. Uh, here, there, we don't know the, the extent or the details of the commands that Adam was given. It's a great question. But Adam was, was put in a priestly role to minister unto the Lord. It wasn't necessarily sacrifices, because the sacrifices were, were for what purpose? Yeah, to atone. To atone for sin. Well, there wasn't sin yet. So there was no need for a blood sacrifice. That doesn't come until chapter 3. There was no need for, but there could have been burnt offerings of grain offerings and other things offered up unto the Lord. There could have been tithes of the produce of the land, of, of the wine, of the olive oil, and all these other things. Those certainly would have been offerings made to the Lord, and the priests would have been responsible for doing that. Matthew? Yeah. Amen. Amen. Absolutely. Work was a good thing. Um, there's also, I think, uh, coming out of the, particularly through the Middle Ages, <clears throat> there was a bifurcation, there was a division of work into the secular and the sacred. And so the, the monks, the priests, the nuns, you know, they did sacred work and everybody else was just working to eat. So the blacksmith, the, the cobbler, the uh, farmer, they weren't doing secular work. Well, I think this also explodes that idea. And the reformers, thankfully, recovered, uh, labored much to recover the doctrine of vocation. So we, we do away with this division between secret, sacred and secular work. The, um, <clears throat> we find throughout the scriptures, you know, in Ecclesiastes, whatever your hand finds you to do, do with all your might. And, and Paul, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And so there's this idea that that some work was sec sacred and some was secular. Adam certainly would have been um, participating in agricultural kinds of affairs, but he was also a priest. And so these were, the, the Lord was making no distinction between what was sacred and what was secular, to, to use a somewhat anachronistic term. But these ideas of work and keep, you hear those are the same Hebrew words as guard and minister. So Adam was to work and to keep the garden. The priests under the tabernacle system were to guard and minister. They're exactly the same Hebrew words. So Adam's law of affirmative obedience was to serve 
It was to protect the temple sanctuary of God. He is a priest working in the garden. And he was a prophet because he was assigned to the duty not only to hear the word of God, but to teach it and to rebuke those who contradict it. Now, I think you probably already smell the problem coming, don't you? As a priest, Adam's job was to teach the word of God and rebuke those who contradict it. Well, that's precisely the point of difficulty and trouble, isn't it? Adam didn't do that. And so when he failed, he failed not just as a husband, but as a prophet, priest, and king of God Most High. Adam's law of affirmative obedience was to serve, was to protect the temple sanctuary. But in addition to his priestly and prophetical duties, Adam was commanded by God to subdue the whole earth, to subdue all of creation, and to expand his rule over all the earth. Now what is that? That's well, a kingly commission, isn't it? To go and conquer. And so we see in, in, a, in, a, very, in a much smaller form of this with King David, who was praised and, and lauded by the people because he expanded the territory. He went out and conquered enemies in the name of God and expanded the territory. That was what Adam was supposed to have done as a king before God. So affirmatively, we see Adam here as prophet, priest, and king. But negatively, God commanded obedience from Adam in the prohibition of eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so we find that biblical covenants have positive laws, which are in addition to the moral and natural law. Clearly, God gave Adam positive laws to obey. Now, let's illustrate this another way. When God commanded his people through Joshua to go into the promised land, they crossed over the Jordan, they went into the promised land, and they were to devote the Canaanites to utter destruction. Man, woman, and child, even beasts of the field, they were to kill them all. Now, was that because the Canaanites had disobeyed positive law? It wasn't because the Canaanites were not circumcising their children that God devoted them to destruction. It wasn't because the Canaanites were worshiping Yahweh in a place that God had not appointed. It was not because they were offering a pig as a sacrifice instead of a goat. See, those would all be positive laws that God had given to his particular people. The, who was obligated, of all the men of the earth, who was obligated to circumcise their sons on the eighth day? Only Israel. That was not moral law. There was nothing moral about that. That's why when we fast forward to the New Testament, Paul says in Galatians that circumcision is nothing. Because it's not a moral law, that was a positive law. It was a, God, it was a law given to a specific people in a specific place under a specific covenant. Well, Adam was given a positive law not to eat of the tree. Now, if we can identify somehow what tree that was, that, that command would no longer be binding upon you and me to say, well, you're not, see, God has said, you're not allowed to eat of that tree. Well, that was a particular covenant in a particular place. I think broccoli used to be a tree, and that's what it was, but never. No, I'm lying. <clears throat> so biblical covenants have pa positive laws in addition to the moral or natural law, and clearly God had given Adam a positive law to obey. So, just just kind of let's let's follow through our case so far. We've 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 presented three pieces of evidence so far that that Adam was in fact under a covenant of works. The first is that Adam was placed by God. That wasn't his. The garden wasn't his point of creation or place of creation. God created him and then placed him in the garden. Secondly, that God appointed Adam a federal. Head. He stood as a representative of all mankind. And thirdly, God obligated Adam to a positive law of obedience. Now here's our fourth piece of evidence we need to consider. God promised reward to Adam, and it's a reward of eternal life on the condition of obedience. The reward promised to Adam becomes very plain to see 
when we consider the two most prominent features in the Garden in Eden, Garden of Eden. So if you kind of think about this, and maybe close your eyes and imagine, what, what, if you close your eyes and kind of picture the Garden of Eden, what are the two features that you would say stand out the most? Two trees. Two trees. That's, that's where our, our literary focus is, is on the two trees. A tree of the knowledge of good and evil, from which God said, thou shalt not eat. And a tree of life. The first tree signifies the perfect and complete obedience required of Adam. There was no wiggle room. There, there was no 99% to pass the test. 100% obedience from the heart was required of Adam to stand before the Lord as his prophet, priest, and king. Now the second tree signifies the reward that would follow, but on what condition? Obedience. Complete, total, perfect, absolute obedience. Renahan says, Sam Renahan says, confirmed eternal life, and immutable, perfect communion with God were not a part of Adam's natural constitution. He was sinless and upright, but he was able to sin. Adam was created innocent, sinless, upright, but mutable. His will was free, but it was also free to succumb to a temptation. Of course, we know that he did. And because of such a, re a reward... Such a reward like eternal life is so unimaginably great. Confirmed eternal life, confirmed eternal communion with God, then the obedience to earn such a thing must be complete, total, perfect, absolute. And so the tree of life is a covenant symbol. Now, Generally, what do we refer to? When we, when we think about covenant symbols, symbols, what words do we use to describe a covenant symbol? What are the covenant symbols in the New Covenant? There are two. Sacrament, baptism, Lord's Supper. So what then does the tree, how do we view the tree then? It's a sacrament. What was the covenant symbol under Abraham? Circumcision, Right? It was a sacrament. It was an ordinance of circumcision. The tree of life is a covenant symbol. It signifies the reward of confirmed eternal life, immutable perfection of Adam's person, and eternal communion with God in his presence. Now this is confirmed later on for us in the book of the Revelation. In Revelation 2 and verse 7, Jesus declares, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. See, all the way into the book of Revelation, there's this idea that if those who overcome, those who obey, will have the right to eat of the tree of life. In Revelation 22, the end of the book, then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on the other side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nation. So just as an aside here, was the tree of life or the tree of knowledge of good and evil, was it an apple? Tree of life has 12 fruits, 12 different fruits. But, but what, is, what, what do we learn as we think about these passages? The tree of life is an ordinance, it's a, it's a sacrament, and it symbolizes what? Eternal life, confirmed, uninterrupted, and I'll, can I make up a word? Unlosable, eternal life. Irrevocable, eternal life. That was in the garden. It was there. Had Adam confirmed his obedience? Now, over what period of time, we don't know. We're not told that. But Adam was in a place where there was a covenant made with him that if you will, if you will do this, look to this tree. Just as, as we're told, 
week by week by week, look to the bread and the wine. And Paul says, as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you declare, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. It's a symbol for us, declaring that Christ is going to come again with all the angels of heaven and that he will make all things new, glorify us with him, give to us a body like unto himself and raise us for eternal life. That's what the symbol is. Adam had such a symbol. He had it in the garden. There was a tree right there in front of him, the tree of life. It was a sacrament. It was an ordinance. And God said, look to this tree. Look to this as a reminder of my promise to you as part of the covenant that I have made. There was a promise of reward. And this promise of reward was outside of the natural arrangement. The natural arrangement with Adam was what? There's all this food for you to eat. You can go and work and till the ground and the soil will be fruitful and all these good gifts will come to you and you are free to eat of all these things. And that was part of the natural arrangement with Adam. What was not part of the natural arrangement is if you obey my words, then you will gain access to eternal life. Now there's one more piece of evidence that we want to consider and it's this, and this is the other, the other side of the coin, so to speak, with the, with the covenant. Not only is there a reward for obedience, but there's always a sanction. There is a penalty. There is a cost to disobedience. So not only did God promise rewards, but he threatened sanctions upon Adam if he disobeyed. Now, sanctions are what typically formalize a covenant commitment. And of course, maybe one of the most vivid covenant ceremonies in the scriptures is when God first made a covenant with Abram. Remember what he did? He told Abram to take, take the bulls and cut them in two. Cut them in half. Separate them. And then the Lord himself passed through. And, and the, the, the symbol of the covenant was essentially whatever happens to these animals, if I break this covenant, it happens to me. And so God is saying, if I break my covenant, I will die. Well, of course, God cannot die, which means the covenant, God could not break this covenant with Abram. But it was a very, it's a very vivid, you know, if you allow your mind to picture that scene, it's a very vivid picture of what a, a covenant is, but it, was, but it was formalized according to a sanction. And so God says to Adam, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely eat die. Sam Renahan makes this comment. He said, if Adam ruptured God's rule, he would surely die. His commission to bring creation to consummation would end in ruin, and the seed he was supposed to bring to glory would fall with him. As goes the king, so goes the kingdom. Now, of course, that's precisely what happened, is it not? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil signified not only the obedience that was required of Adam, but it also symbolized the sanction of death for his disobedience. So there were two sacraments in the garden, two trees that stood as sacraments, one promising life and the other promising death. Life for obedience and death for disobedience. Now, let's try to bring all these things back together here. As we think about the fall of man, the sin that's here, the punishment thereof, all of these are a consequence of Adam having broken a divine covenant, and Adam stood in my place and in yours as the covenant head, so that when Adam fell and broke the covenant of works, so did I, and so did you. All these features advance Adam beyond his natural created state. So the necessary conclusion that the arrangement that God had made with Adam was not just a handshake deal, as we might say. This was not an informal arrangement. This was a covenant with both sanctions and promises of reward. It was positive law. So we think about this, positive law plus required obedience plus sanctions, plus a promise of eternal life, 
conditioned upon obedience, what does that equal? It's a covenant of works. So now we can come back and ask the question, is this a covenant of works? Because the word isn't here. Nowhere is the word covenant used in Genesis chapters 1, 2, or 3. But when we put all the evidence together, I hope, I hope your conscience is, is persuaded that we do, in fact, have a covenant of works. Now, what happens, though, if we ignore this or we reject the claim? This is, this is not a, a, a victimless crime if we reject this idea. If we reject and say that Adam was not under a covenant of works, here's, here are the consequences, and here's just a few of them. If there is no covenant of works, then Adam is not the federal head of all mankind. So, of course, that happens if you just dis- dismiss chapters 1, 2, and 3 as literal. And you just say, those are, they're, they're symbolic, they're metaphorical, they're poetic, they're, they're a literary description of, what ha- of, of the creation, but they're not literal history. Well, that would certainly make Adam not covenant head. But specifically here, if we reject the concept of covenant of works, then Adam cannot be the federal head of all mankind. And, and so then from there, we have to reason further. If Adam is not the federal head, then can we really say that man has fallen? Can we really say that every single man, woman, boy, and girl on the face of the planet has fallen at Adam? If Adam was not the covenant head? If, if we can, if we, can we really say that all men are sinful, separated from God? And so if we take away the covenant of works... We've taken away Adam's federal headship. Now, what else do we lose? The, the justness of God's charge against man is removed. God is no longer just to charge men with sin. God would not be just to charge you with sin from birth or from, from the womb. Man is really not dead in his sins and darkened in his understanding by nature if Adam is not our federal head. But we're not done. Wait, there's more. If man is not dead in his sins, and if man does not stand condemned in Adam, then there was no need for the incarnation of Christ, was there? There was no need for a new Adam. If the first one either didn't exist or wasn't really under a covenant of works. And lastly... More than that, we would remove the entire basis of the necessity of the imputation of Christ's righteousness to men in order to be saved. That's not even necessary. If Adam was not under a covenant of works, that means not all men are dead in sins and trespasses because Adam was not really the federal head and means that all are not condemned in Adam, which means there wasn't a necessity of Christ taking on our human flesh and offering himself up as the perfect sacrifice for sin. So, covenant works is kind of a big deal, isn't it? I'm I'm being facetious. It's, It's a very big deal. It's important. And I remember when I when I first began to first introduce the covenant theology. And it was primarily from a, a paedo-baptist perspective when I first was, was learning about this. But we, again, we, we, we agree fundamentally on these things. And, and so it was kind of a, an aha moment for me that Adam could have achieved eternal life in the garden had he obeyed. Had he kept covenant with God, that Adam could have achieved eternal life. It was kind of an aha moment for me. I hadn't really thought about that before. That Adam was, in a sense in a probationary period against which he rebelled, the law of God against which he rebelled. His state of innocency, innocency, his his communion with God, then is not our goal. It is not our goal as Christians simply to return to the garden and sort of get back to where Adam was. Saints, under the new covenant, we have a far better promise than Adam had. We have a far better promise. 
his created state and his initial covenant with God was provisional. It was probationary. He was, he was upright and innocent, but mutable. Had Adam succeeded, he would have inherited eternal life. He would have gained immutable sinlessness and perpetual communion with God, but he didn't. Now, who did accomplish that? The second Adam. The second Adam. And so if you are found in him, if you are found in Christ, you have access to this immutable sinlessness in eternity. One final observation from Dr. Sam Renahan. The covenant of works was a supreme blessing and a privilege, an opportunity for mankind to dwell in blissful communion with God for all eternity. If we depreciate that truth, we will depreciate the depths of Adam's infidelity. Adam did not fall out of bed and bonk his head. He fell from orbit and was obliterated when he hit the ground. And I like that. See, we can minimize, can't we, the extent of Adam's sin. I think, well, he just, it was a minor transgression. Did God overreact? When we think about the full range, not only of opportunities that Adam was given, but the covenant that God had made with him, it becomes uh, much more egregious in, in our understanding the, the, the degree to which Adam fell. Again, to use Sam's words, he didn't fall out of bed and bonk his head. He fell from orbit and was obliterated when he hit the ground. And that's where we start. All of us. And we start at that place of fallenness, of being at enmity with God, of being cast out of his presence, being cast from the garden, being, being rendered unfit to worship him. And it is only through the mediatorial work of Christ that we can be restored through the sacrificial work of Christ, through his atoning work that we can be restored, through his blood and the body. So we'll close there just a few minutes before our worship service. Let's, let's pray and give thanks to God for his word. Lord God, we are grateful that You've not left us to, to grope in the dark. You've not left us to, to try to sort through these things on our own. Uh, we, we are grateful that you've given us your word. You've given us a sure testimony. And we, we praise you for that. But far more, you have given to us a perfect prophet, priest, and king. One who has passed through the heavens, come to earth, taken on our flesh, lived a life of perfect sinless, spotless obedience and has made it so that all who are found in him will secure the promise that he has earned, eternal life. We praise you and we pray that you will help us uh, to walk in him. We pray for those who are here this morning, both in our Sunday school hour, but also in the worship that comes, that all those who are not yet found in Christ that today would be the day they have opportunity for, through the covenant of grace, to be born again. To be born of, of, of greater stuff, of water and the word, not of flesh. And be united to Christ for eternity. We ask this in his name. Amen.